Welcome to Message Received. In this episode, Peter and Tim are speaking about storytelling and how to communicate your message. Welcome to Message Received. Peter Sandbach, it's so great to have you with us. <laughs> it's good to be with you, Tim. So we're both in Basel, Switzerland, but we are miles apart, I think. Or are you where, where are you today? I shouldn't make this presumption. Where are you uh, calling you from I'm today? In the I'm not far from Basel. I'm in the beautiful Alsace. Okay, but your accent isn't very Alsacian. So <laughs> can you give us the, for the people listening today, I've got a fellow presenter coach, uh, storyteller, communicator on the line with me. But Peter, can you give us a sense of your history and your background? Well, well spotted Tim, my accent's from North of England. So uh, you could probably hear that. Um, but I try and tone it down, you know, for uh, <laughs> for audiences. Uh, yeah, I was, I was brought up in the North of England, near to Manchester. Um, I then moved down to the south of England and worked for a small company um, called Novartis for a while. Um, and then I moved to Switzerland in 2001, beginning in 2001 to work for a, a Basel company um, called Syngenta, which was born out of Novartis all those years ago. And then after that, I moved on to another Basel company. And Basel has some great companies, doesn't it, Tim? Another Basel company called Roche for 11 years. And there I was head of communication training. And now I've I'm working with the wonderful people of audience. So was the journey from Novartis, this agenda to Roche, was that communication through and through or different roles over that period of time? All communications. But I'll tell you what, it was it was a great ride because um, it was a place in time and history that no one else would have had. So I started off in a, in a PR company. I started communications in a PR company back in uh, 1995. And it was the, the a scientific PR company. And at the time, it was the only PR company in the UK that, that was science-based. And we had a really famous client. She was called Dolly, and she was a cloned sheep. Right, so yes. This, this is, I keep bringing this back because everybody knows about Dolly. She was um, the second most famous female in the world in 1996. The most fem famous one being Princess Diana, of course. So, so yeah, communications all the time. Um, working in media relations um, for Novartis, I was the spokesperson for a really tricky issue, genetically modified crops. Um, so I was Mr. Franken Frankenstein food man um, for a couple of years, which was really exciting. I mean, we had, we, we had it was a nightmare and exciting at the same time. We had five national newspapers with campaigns against us. So that was um, yeah, that was that was a, a thrill. <laughs> and did, were you trained in public relations? Did you do this in uni? No, no, no. I, I, I studied biology, which was useful for the topics that I now work in and have worked in over these 20 odd years. Um, so, so yeah, a science background has, has helped over the years. And what gave you the turn from science to, to communication? I think I've always been, um, I, I love the science. But I've always been an artsy, dramatic kind of person. So I, I like both sides. And I think communicating about science marries both of them really nicely. I like it. And so you obviously don't have any desire to be in the spotlight. <laughs> I mean, clone <laughs> sheep, uh, the genetically modified foods, big pharma companies. And you say you have a, a flair for the drama. So what is it about these high spotlight, high pressure uh, jobs and situations that you've thrived on? I think 
I think first I, I've enjoyed the the controversy, the excitement. I couldn't deal with boring stuff, but more than that, I've enjoyed helping the people that I've worked with try and explain their science in ways that normal people can understand. Because a lot of them, you've had to persuade people. So genetically modified crops, of course, you've had to persuade people of the safety and the benefits. And then if you take it through to the, the Roche end of the spectrum, the farmer end of the spectrum, um, you've got to convince people about the benefits of your treatments, your drugs, or even the project that you're working on. So I've really enjoyed helping people to articulate about their science and what they're passionate about. So recognizing that these organizations still represent your client base very much. Um, how would you answer the following question? To what degree was your job to help them tell the truth? And what degree, to, to what degree was your job what we might call spin, where you're trying to minimize uh, the truth? So th actually, that's, that's a really good question, because here is where you need to look at yourself as well. And I, I often look at myself. I've got to believe in something before I help somebody help somebody else believe in something, if you know what I mean. So with genetically modified crops, I looked into the science um, with my background, but from a kind of neutral standpoint, if I hadn't have believed in it, I wouldn't have been able to stand up for it. And I wouldn't expect anybody else um, to stand up for what they didn't believe in either. And that's true with with controversial topics like that. It's also true with um, these days I, I get to coach um, leaders when they're making changes in their teams, for example. And if I can see that a leader is not convinced with uh, what's happening or whether it's the best thing to do in the interests of, of the company or whatever, then I, I have an issue with that. So I've got to believe in something first and then I can wholeheartedly um, defend it and go out there and be, you know, proactively talking about things. I love what you've said because I wasn't sure what you're going to answer. So I feel very, I'm grateful that you've said what you've said. I've been working for 20 years in pharma and I can count on one hand the number of times I worked with anyone who was making the stereotypical spin. And so I've been blessed to work with great clients in great therapy areas. And it's just been a handful of times where I thought, uh, I'm not sure I like what's going on here. And I, I think, yeah, we couldn't live with ourselves. Um, otherwise, a technique I use as a coach often, if I if I'm working with a presenter, especially the, around the internal changes type of situation that you're describing, and they're struggling with the presentation, I'll just stop. I'll, I'll cut the rehearsal. I'll say, look, let's cut cut the rehearsal. Can I just ask you a question? Do you really believe in these changes? And that person will be like, oh yeah. Absolutely. Now, this is what we need to do. This is the vision. This is why we need to do it. No, it makes perfect sense. And I'm like, okay, there, just say that. Just say that. Forget the jargon. Forget the slides. Just say that. So I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Tim. I'm exactly the same. And um, I mentioned to you before, I do, I do a lot of media training as well. And I've, I've done this over the years. And I remember um, training somebody um, who was really high up in an organization. Um, and this person had had a tough day because it was the day before the annual results. So, you know, they, they go through loads. They do the rehearsals for the presentations. Um, they go through the Q&A with the analysts and so on. And then at the end of the day, they, they got me for a few hours, um, giving them the toughest questions I could possibly give them and not letting them go either. And this person was at the end of a long day and um, 
he was talking about a new drug that was coming out um, and how beneficial it was going to be um, in, in a certain um, in a certain disease area. Um, and he was obviously really tired and he was explaining this to me. And, and I said to him, I said, are you excited by this drug? He said, yes. I said, well, show me then. <laughs> and it was just because he was really tired. And I said, you've got to bring the energy up tomorrow because he really believed in it. And you're just going to show it. So true. So true. And let, let's go a little bit into some of these lessons that we've learned as not just the communicator, but the person who helps the communicator communicate. The whole area of coaching and, and encouraging others and supporting others. What are your, some of your key lessons from, from that journey, Ben? Well, I think I, I, like to, I like to see the real spark in people's eyes. If you can't see that, then, you know, why don't they just send out a slide set? The reason for them being in front of people, whether it's in a virtual setting, whether it's on a stage, is so that they can transfer their emotion. That's the main thing. So that's what I'm looking for. And some people struggle with emotion. Corporate people, scientists struggle with emotion. And I say, you know, it's just to show the enthusiasm in your project or it's to bring out the importance, why it matters. Why does your work matter? And then you transfer that emotion to people. Then you get people to act or to change. So I think that's the key to bringing out the best in people. It's to spot where their eyes sparkle. And I think, that, I think that that emotion, emotional range is also, it's almost like a sliding scale. So I went to theater school. And like you've never seen emotion like in theater school, right? So everything is super dramatic and it's it's. Like if someone is sad, they cry. If someone is angry, they scream. If someone's happy, they you know da literally dance on the tables with joy. Some of the scientists I work with, it's like they have all of those emotions, but they are portrayed at, at, at an opposite end of the scale. It's almost like, so on a ratio level, you know, what in theater school is dancing on the tables for the scientist is, you know, having a good laugh, let's say. And that I, I've had to adjust my mindset to that to be to saying, OK, within the context in which you are presenting, how is emotion displayed so that I'm not asking my presenter to go not just outside their comfort zone, but outside the, the cultural boundaries of, of, of what's the norm? Like, how do we go? How do we uh, be surprising but not shocking, let's say, within within your context? And I have found that discussion very helpful with uh, my more scientific uh, presenters. <laughs> You're absolutely right. I'm, I'm thinking of some other occasions that, that I've have dealt with here. And the two things to remember, I think, number one, you've got to be audience appropriate. I mean, we, we, we're working for audience, so we've got to think of the audience first. But that means being appropriate in terms of culture and occasion as well. Um, so, no, you can't go on putting on false emotions because people see through it. But then again, you shouldn't have misplaced emotions um, when it's not the right place to do so, or whether it's culturally insensitive to do so. And I've seen particularly um, some Swiss audiences re react badly against these presenters that are, that are too rah, 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 or too, too emotional, too in their faces. And, and what's the relationship with, with authenticity? I mean, we hear it, it's, it's become, I'm actually very grateful for it. It's a big buzzword out there in in the world right now. But as someone who studied theater, that's that's been part of my DNA for, you know, for 30 odd years. 
and this sense that I think maybe what the Swiss culture is reacting to is the feeling that someone is putting on airs or they are, it's a disingenuous level of energy or excitement. What are, what are your thoughts there on the role of authenticity in communication? But authenticity, is, well, I define it as this, it's being yourself while recognizing your impact on others. And I think that's the key to being um, a really authentic leader because we hear authentic banded about too much these days. There's loads of these buzzwords, but it's just basically, it's being yourself in front in front of others um, and, and knowing the audience. So how will they react to it? But then the final part of that in business is knowing what outcome you want of that. If you're just gonna stand up and be emotional and tell great entertaining stories, that's all very well. But if it doesn't achieve anything for your business, then what's the point? Yeah, I think there's this interesting relationship between strategic communication and authenticity. And the real magic is to be able to be, I love the way you put it, uh, mindful of your impact on your audience. So I have to be the real me, but in relation to the real you. And so if being the real me is going to upset you unnecessarily, then, well, congratulations, you're an authentic jerk, right? It's like... No, I need to be somehow strategically authentic. And some people see that as a contradiction. I think of it more as a paradox. It is paradoxical in its nature, which means that it must be cleverly resolved each time. And it's it's never it's it's never quite perfect. Let, let's talk a little bit about storytelling. I know that you're a big fan of the concept. I've done I've done work with you. We've been in the same room, where, where room when you've explained the hero's journey, for instance. You do it brilliantly well. What is the role of storytelling in communication? Why do you consider it so important? Well, I, I think it comes down to that authenticity again, being yourself. Because when you tell a story, um, you can take people with you. You can make them part of your story. It's a way of making ideas stick. And it's a really great way of landing a message. So we, we're all hardwired to understand stories. All human beings can tell stories. And I've been in rooms of people who said, well, I can't tell stories, I can't present. Yes, they can. Because you walk into a bar or a restaurant or just in a social situation, every single person can engage somebody else with some kind of story. And it's tapping into that innate ability that we've got as storytellers, but also as story listeners. Like I said, if you've got a business outcome um, to get a message across, a story is the most efficient way to do it. So some people, when they hear a story, they think that I'm supposed to tell a story like as in, so when I was a little boy, I had a red bicycle and it has to be anecdotal. It's got a beginning, middle and an end. And it's 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 somehow um, a whole scene or a whole narrative in a little package. And then so sometimes my clients will ask me, well, look, I'm giving a 15 slide presentation on this study that we've conducted and it's high high important science you want me to inter like you want me to interject these anecdotal stories of my past into that or you, do you want me to make the study a story like how do you explain that to a to a presenter that's i mean that's a good point and and it depends on the context and the outcome as well but um, it's got to have a structure. So the, the structure you mentioned, Hero's Journey, is a great one. I use that a lot. Um, beginning, middle and end, that's the least you can give an audience. And you can have a really short story with a beginning, a middle and an end. 
but you'd be surprised how many business stories um, just are all boring middle. How many <laughs> presentations have we sat through that are just all middle? They've paid no attention to grabbing the attention of the audience, making it matter to them. But then also you get the business stories that, that just have the end. So it's positive, positive, positive all the time. And we don't hear how they got to that positive result. It's just wasn't the team successful? <gasps> Boring. You've got to put it in a way that the audience is dragged in. Uh, it's relevant to them. And they, they're taken along on your story. And you can do that in five seconds. You can do that in 15 minutes. So it, it all depends on the content as well. But that's the least we can give the audience. I love that. I've got a model I call the rock model. So it's rock with two C's, R-O-C-C. -C. The, the R is for rapport. The very first thing you need to do on that stage is let the audience know that you know who they are and, and give them a sense of who you are so that you feel a bond. Then objective, O is for objective. You need to tell them why you're there. What do you want them to get from what you're about to say? Then you have what what your the C the next C is for content and this is your middle this is the presentation itself and then the the final C is for call to action or for close and what I say is you can get away with that content being almost unchanged in context after context after context as long as you do a great job on rapport and objective and a great job on on call to action being specific to the audience. And uh, I, 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 I don't know if our listeners will find that that helpful. I find it helpful. I've written that one down, Tim, but it's a similar way that that I try and coach people as well. And um, you, you probably know this as well. I've, I've dabbled in stand up comedy myself. And the first part is really important. You've got to nail those first lines to get that rapport with your audience. Otherwise, you've lost them. You've lost them. And it's the same in business. If you don't nail the beginning, that rapport, that that um, attention grabber to begin with, then there is no middle and end because they're doing something else, particularly in this virtual world as well. You've got to ramp that up in this virtual world because there are so many distractions around this screen of ours that we could just go and do our emails, look at Instagram. Um, there's lots of other things we could be doing. That's right. And I think the main message is I'm on your side. And it's probably it's, it's the same with the comedian, I think, is it not? The feeling is, hey, hey, audience, I'm on your side. I want you to laugh. I want you to enjoy yourself. We're from the same. We're not in opposition to one another. And that, that there's this sense of, you know, I, 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 I think every comedian and every actor, that's for sure, wants two things. Applause and money. And the way you get those two things from your audience is you must bring a gift, right? You must. You must give them the gift of entertainment, give them the, the gift of laughter. And then in return, you will receive applause and money. And it's, and it's like a reciprocal relationship. And, and to think and to think of it that way, it's 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 not all delivery. I don't. Right. And in fact, I don't really love the the way that that word is used in presentation skills around delivery, as if I'm delivering a pizza. And it's like, well, no, you're going to. It, it's more like talking over a meal. You're going to sit down together and and discuss, even if you're doing all the talking strangely. Exactly. I mean, this is what I tell the people that I coach as well. Um, a presentation is just a discussion with a group of people. 
basically. It's a conversation with a group of people. And that I find that changes people's minds. Um, if you view it as a them and us situation, then it will always be adversarial and it will always there will always be this unhealthy tension there. But if you change the words that you use to we and together and so on, even if you're presenting to a leadership team that your most important project you've worked on for the last 20 years, it's a we must move on this together feeling rather than a thank you for putting me on your agenda and a, a them and us feeling. So it's a conversation with with a group of people. And that speaks a little bit to the topic of confidence. So I, I as a coach, I'm asked all the time, oh, Tim, can we can you help me communicate with confidence? What are your thoughts on that topic? Because that takes some confidence to be able to say to a, a senior leadership team, hey, it's we. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Are you talking about confidence in terms of the nerves or are you talking about confidence in terms of um, being comfortable in front of an important audience? Both, I would say. Well, both, because I, I mean, I've seen both. Um, I've often said to people when they've said uh, when they've started a presentation to a group of important people, thank you for having me on your agenda. Thanks for having time for me today. Thanks for letting me present my project. No, don't do that. They should be thanking you. You've done all the work. Just go straight in there. So there's that confidence in what they're presenting. And, you know, we should move forward with this. But then on the other side, I think you mentioned there as well that the nerves. Um, we're not all um, public speaking nerds like like you are or I am, Tim. Um, we know that people aren't so confident to stand up on a stage like as as we are. And we love it, don't we? We absolutely. And you can tell. But we're unusual in that respect. Not everybody loves to do that. Um, I would love it if people would love to do that. But the world would be a horrible place if we were all the same. So it's 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 finding that inner confidence, the, the inner confidence that you know what you're doing. Sometimes those people that are understated, that have a quiet confidence in their work and what they're presenting can be just as powerful as the ones that bellow all the time like I do. Yeah, there's so many great points in what you've just said. Uh, I'll start with 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 the, your final comment is that the authentic person who is clear in their speech but nervous is preferred to the person who is confident but not authentic or not clear in their speech so we are very happy to see someone who's trembling but it's the real genuine them and every word is just you know spot on that's a that's a beautiful place to be the other is is your your point about people who love the microphone or love the stage so sometimes when I'm working with a presenter who says, oh, I'm so nervous and I don't know how I'm going to improve, uh, how, how do you do it? I say, well, tell me. So when you were five years old and the teacher wanted someone to give a speech or they wanted someone to put on a play, did you put your hand up and jump up and do it? Or did you sit and hope that no one would notice you? And they're like, well, I, I sat and hoped that no one would notice me. And I'm like, well, every single time since that same age that I've been offered a microphone, I've taken it. And I may have nothing to say. I literally don't need anything to say. It's just like, Tim, would you like to come and say a few words? Of course I'd like to come and say a few words. What words would you like to say? I have no idea, but I'll, I'll have something by the time I get there. Let me let me guarantee you. So I've spent, it's like a pilot, right? I've spent like 20,000 million hours in front of people exposing myself to the, to the audience. And you, my friend, you've spent two hours in that same 53-year life. So how can you possibly expect 
to be confident. So my message is every meeting is an opportunity. Speak, speak a little more in each meeting. Ask a few more questions than you normally would. Uh, stand to present instead of sitting. Just And then over the course of a year, lo and behold, you will feel that much more confident. Like there's no mystery to it, right? There's no mystery. You just reminded me of something my mother used to say to me as well. She said, Peter, she said, you would make a speech at the opening of an envelope. She is, because I was, I, was, I was that kid who'd take the microphone all the time. But yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Even the, you know, the people that aren't used to speaking, it's their opportunity to make a mark, to build their brand in, you know, in, in, the, in the way that they want, to, they want to build their brand. But also they say to me, um, so, so how do people like you do it? And, and I also say it's, it's rehearsal as well. The ones that make it look easy work at it really, really hard. You've got to rehearse, you've got to practice, you've got to try out new things. The little tricks that will take you that little bit further every time. Yes, and you, you've given me a little soapbox to stand on because I, I could count at least 20, I think, presenters that I've worked with over the years, uh, almost exclusively male, interestingly enough, who are well-renowned as great presenters, who actively go out of their way to make it seem like they don't rehearse, but they do, because they want to pre preserve this aura of being a natural. And to me, it's such a disservice to their, to their colleagues, because they should know that, yeah, there, there are very few, I, I mean, I can't think of anyone who is either hasn't gotten great by rehearsal or has gotten great because they're on stage three times a week, which is the equivalent of rehearsing in a sense. And, you know, you've just flown a lot of air miles sort of thing. Um, so for rehearsal, when you're trying to get someone comfortable with rehearsal who, who is not comfortable with rehearsal, what are your tips and tricks? Well, first of all, I, I think that they've, they've got to be comfortable with not being perfect. And the way I talk to them about that is the way I discuss that with them is um, they've seen these people uh, and I think um, I probably know one or two of the ones you're talking about Tim that come across really really polished but sometimes they can come across too polished and an audience gets that particularly in the Swiss environment that I've worked in in the last 20 years if somebody is too polished there's an adverse reaction to that so I think with rehearsals they've got to be comfortable with this is this is um, trying things out. This is trying what out what works for you. But you do not have to be 100% perfect. And and they generally they're generally good at that. They're generally okay with that philosophy. Yeah, I use the word experiment a lot. Let's mm. treat this as an experiment. Let's see what it might sound like if you try it with with less detail, or try it with more humor, or try it in, as a dialogue with with the with the moderator. Mm. The the stakes could not be lower in a rehearsal room. Oh, I like that. The stakes could not be lower in a rehearsal room. Well, if you're rehearsing many days before the event, what I see, the mistake I see, a lot of rehearsals, it's 11 p.m. the night before the show, and they're finally rehearsing, and it's not going very well, and they realize that they've got more slides than they can manage, and now they're in a panic. Uh, what are your thoughts on the timing of rehearsals? How many should I do? How many days before a presentation should I do my rehearsals? Well, I, I normally work on the basis of three, three. The power of three is a good one. Um, one, to be confident with your content and the order and so on. Um, two, to run it through once. And three, as the dress rehearsal. 
So at least three times. And the third one should be as close to the event as possible. The other two can be well, well ahead. But the, the, the dress rehearsal should be as close as possible to the actual thing. Great advice. In the virtual world, my, la my last set of questions, you and I are both show people. We love the stage. We love the applause. We love being there, the excitement in the room. I found the transition to virtual at first very uncomfortable, a full, full transparency. I really felt like it was just it, it, it was like someone saying, OK, you're a chef, but you can't taste the food or something like that. It was just like, this makes no sense. And I've, I've come to embrace it. I've come to enjoy it. But it was not an easy transition. What, what was it like for you? I hated it. Absolutely. In fact, I went into a kind of depression to begin with because this oxygen of publicity or being with an audience for me was just taken away and a little piece of me died every day and and to be quite honest I, I suffered I really mentally suffered for for several months and then I got into the virtual world it wasn't quite the same but now it's 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 almost as natural as as live for me um, but the other day I did a I did a um, a live event for the first time with a, a workshop full of people and I was just, it was amazing. The feeling, I was just so ecstatic inside. It was amazing to, to be back face to face again. I mean, virtual is fine. And you do learn the tricks as a presenter as well. So I, I did a keynote speech um, to a, a group of 300 people in Slovenia. So you can present to anyone, anywhere uh, a couple of months ago. But it was an hour's keynote speech on Zoom. And it was one of those where you cannot see the audience. And you've got to be an actor there, Tim, because you're getting nothing from anybody. So that's where the actor comes in. So, yeah, it, it can it can um, have its tough moments, but um, but I'll be glad to see when life starts to come back in full flourish. Yes. And I don't know when people are listening to this, hopefully it's sometime in the future and things are back to normal. And this Peter and I are talking about uh, ancient history. But my my first few live events I've done. My opening line is, hey, everyone, you're not on mute. Let's hear it. <laughs> it just feels so good. None of us are on mute. <laughs> so, so, Peter, our, uh, our, our podcast is called Message Received. And when we're talking about communication and being a more confident storyteller and presenter, being your authentic self, are there, is there a final message that you want to make sure that our audience receives from you today? Well, we all communicate for a purpose um, and generally it's a business purpose that I help people with. So don't forget the punchline. The message has got to be there. Well, that's a great, that's a great punchline. That's the perfect final message for an episode of Message Received. So Peter Sandbach, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. Don't forget to join us next week for the following episode how employees can make their bosses better leaders. Thank you, and don't forget to follow Message Received.